Um, hi, everybody. My name is um, DeMont Folks. Um, I first found this church um, in January of 2014. I moved to Burlington, stayed there for the February of that year, and then I came down to Chapel Hill. And on the first Sunday I was down here, I was actually leaving University United uh, Methodist Church, and I seen some friends that I had just met, and they was all standing in front drinking coffee. And i like, ooh, I like coffee too. <laughs> so I came, got some coffee, and they was telling me about this church. And I, basically I stayed at this church for um, the next two years. Um, February of last year I left, and I came back um, this Thanksgiving. It's just like one of the most wonderful places I've ever met. But um, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while he still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate, and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Thank you, DeMont. Yeah, DeMont is also a part of our um, Bible study on Tuesday nights and full of wisdom and knowledge of the word. It's always powerful to, to hear what he has to say, what the Lord's been laying on his heart. Thank you, DeMont. Amen. What a passage. What a passage. We're going to dive into this in just a moment. Uh, but first, let me just uh, remind you that it is Baptism Day, which is something we celebrate and love. This is amazing. And uh, our friend Rob Ford is getting baptized today. Where's Rob? There he is. Give it up for Rob. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, and, and Rob was, was signed up to be baptized. And then, Rob, you'll be glad to know somebody else came, up, came in and said they, they wanted to join you today in getting baptized. So it's awesome. Pumped about that. So if anybody else uh, wants to, to join Rob, he was feeling a little lonely there for a minute. So he's glad to have somebody else. Yes, Michelle. Let's uh, let's talk about that, okay? We'll have some, we'll we'll talk about that right after. All right, awesome. Thanks, Michelle. Love you. Awesome. 
Uh, so, yeah, anybody else that's feeling that and you're feeling the tug today uh, to make that declaration, uh, then we celebrate that and we are excited about sharing in that with you. So baptism is this expression. It's an outward expression of something that has already taken place within us, that we are buried with the death of Christ, that his death brings us forgiveness of sins and that we are raised up in the new life of his resurrection and that's what it is it's this public proclamation that i'm a follower of jesus christ i am his and i'm going to walk with him so if that's you today and and you want to join in that then then make sure you grab us and and we'll talk to you afterwards okay awesome praise the lord great um don't worry about uh, about wet clothes either if you didn't bring a change of clothes it's going to be raining anyway so (laughs) got you on that one all right okay (laughs) It's going to be great. All right. So uh, we are in a series called Explore God. And the cool thing about this series is that 50 other churches from around the triangle are all doing this together. All right. It's something that we are all sharing together. Like we said last week, a couple weeks ago, we met together with six or seven other churches uh, for Good Friday to commemorate, to remember, to celebrate the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. In a couple of weeks, we'll be coming together with two other churches in the community as an expression of racial reconciliation. And so this is something that we're serious about as a local church to consistently remind ourselves that we are a part of something so much bigger than just ourselves. We are one small part of the larger story that God is writing in this community through his kingdom. And so we're always looking for opportunities to team up with other churches. And so this is one of those opportunities. So other churches throughout the triangle are going to be wrestling with the same questions that we're wrestling with throughout this series. Uh, We all start from the same question. We end up writing our own sermons because you can't get preachers to get on the same page like that. All right. We're not going to give that up. (laughs) So uh, we're all writing our own sermons and and approaching it from our own angle, from our own uh, style and, and the way that God has called us. But we're starting from the same question. And so last week we wrestled with that question of who is Jesus? He is the son of God, the crucified and resurrected Lord, our Savior. And today we are going to the next step, which is this question of can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? Has anyone ever had that question before? All right. Amen. Exactly. And the rest of you who hadn't, you're like, wait a minute. Let me think about that now. Okay. good, good question. Yes, Michelle. Oh, man. All right. Well, we're going to talk about we're going to touch on that just a little bit. Okay. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Cool. So uh, we're going to wrestle with this question. Can I trust the Bible? A lot of the questions that we're exploring, we we all have questions, right? Sometimes we have questions because we're curious to know the answers. There are other times when we hesitate to even vocalize the questions that we have because we're kind of afraid to know what the answer might be. This is one of those questions. Many of you are students at UNC and you came in with a particular worldview and a particular understanding of what the Bible is. You had a pretty good grasp of it. You knew how to study it. You knew what your favorite verses were. And then you step foot in a few different classrooms and you walk out and that worldview is shredded. 
Anyone had that experience before? Amen. Amen. This is a question that we avoid because we're afraid of what the answer might be. But we don't need to be afraid. Okay? And we're going to walk. Amen. We're going to walk through that today. And just a, just a, a point up front. Okay? This is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be digging into today from Luke chapter 24. But we're not going to be quoting a bunch of different passages from the Bible about the Bible. That is one way to approach that question. Okay? And we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So we understand the authority that the Bible carries. But we're approaching this question from a different angle. Okay, we're approaching this question from the angle of someone who does not believe that. So if you just start quoting more and more verses about the Bible to them, then that doesn't mean anything to them. Right. They're like, you're just using a circular argument. You're just piling it on. I want to know. I want you to step outside of that and tell me why I can trust this Bible that you're quoting at me. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Okay, we're going to be walking through that. We are going to be in this passage um, but we're going to use this passage and this passage is going to direct us in the way that we're going to examine the scriptures. OK, so we're going to start with that question. Can I trust the Bible, which is going to lead us to the second question? Can I trust the New Testament, which is going to lead us to the third question? Who wrote the New Testament, which is going to lead us to the final question? Who formed the New Testament? Who decided what books got in and what books got left out? OK, are you ready? All right, let's dig in. Thank you. All right, so pray for me. All right. Thank you. Okay, let's go. So let me begin with an agenda confession, okay? Because Bible scholars who come at, the, who come at scriptures and, and say that they are studying it without an agenda, everyone brings their own agenda, right? We understand that. Everyone brings their own agenda. So let me just be up front and confess my agenda that I do trust the Bible. Okay, spoiler alert, as Christopher said to me earlier, right? All right, so that's why we teach it. That's why we do this. So we're going to pull back the layers on that and talk about why, okay? We're going to talk about why we do that. So here's why. Here's the first reason why I trust the Bible and why we preach from the Bible, and it's right here in this passage, because Jesus trusted the Bible, Jesus trusted the Bible. Now, that's a pretty Christian answer to start with, all right? But we're going to start there. Jesus trusted the Bible. It says this, after, like, he shows up, this is happening on the same day as the passage we were in last week, right? So on the same day as the resurrection, we were talking last week, that the two disciples are walking. They're on their way to Emmaus. Jesus shows up. They don't know that it's Jesus yet. And he walks them through the scriptures and shows them why the Christ, why the Messiah had to suffer and die and then be raised again again okay and then once they uh get into their home and they're around the table they they've said like the words that this teacher was teaching to us our hearts were burning as he unpacked the scriptures for us and then it takes a next step when jesus breaks the bread at the table it says suddenly their eyes are open and they recognize that it's jesus so their hearts have been engaged through the word. Now their minds and their eyes are open to recognize that it's Jesus. They run back the seven miles back to where the other apostles were in Jerusalem. And it says while they were still talking, they get there and they're, they're telling like what, what took place and what happened. And it says while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled 
and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Because we're startled and we thought we saw a ghost. All right. That's why doubts rise in our mind. That's where we're frightened. And then Jesus begins to say, look, it's me. It is I myself. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me and see a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. And then he begins to unpack this. Well, they still didn't believe because of joy and amazement. But he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be filled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he walked them back again. We have this the second time in like the following encounter. This is what he keeps doing. He keeps walking them back through the scriptures and says, the whole story has been pointing to me all the way along. That's why we preach the Bible. It's because Jesus trusted the Bible. Because Jesus used the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, to help his disciples understand who he is. And the same thing is true for us. He continues to open our minds to the scriptures to show us who he is. He consistently throughout his ministry and his teachings, he's quoting the prophets. He's appealing to Abraham. He's appealing to Moses as this source of his own authority, saying, look, I, I am the one with the authority. And he's, he's quoting them to point to that. Then after his resurrection, these disciples, their, their entire worldview, their entire framework for seeing everything has been destroyed and dismantled and shattered by the crucifixion and the resurrection. They don't know what to make of anything. And Jesus takes those pieces and begins to put them back to reconstruct them in this beautiful mosaic of all of the scriptures before and the final image, the final picture, the lens through which we see the whole world is Jesus himself. He walks them through the scriptures and he says he opens their minds so that they can understand. They were utterly disoriented by the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It tells us that repeatedly. Nobody was getting the clue. They were utterly disoriented. And now Jesus standing among them, physically alive, showing his, his flesh and blood, showing his scars, even eating a piece of fish, which is kind of weird. And we're going to get into later, right? To prove that he's not a ghost, that he's not a myth, that he's not a figment of their imaginations. That he's not something that they've recreated and put the piece back together to try to make sense of this tragic event. No, he brings the whole picture together, opens their minds through the scriptures and says, this is how you view the scriptures is through the lens of me. And now we have a completely different way of understanding it, that he's the irreducible centerpiece and cornerstone of the entire story. Their previous understanding, previous way of interpreting and understanding the scriptures is taken apart and then put back together. He says, before it was incomplete, but now I'm showing you who I am. Jesus specifies three different parts of scripture. It's kind of weird that Jesus says this. He, he, he makes this statement. He says, uh, the, the law of Moses has been talking about me. It's what it says right here in this passage. Moses, the prophets, and the third that he lists is the Psalms. Now, why does Jesus say this? Are these like his favorite books of the Bible? 
And so he starts from there. He's like, these are my top three. Let's start there. No, here's why Jesus says this. Because the Jewish understanding of the scriptures, they had them categor- They had the scriptures categorized in three parts. All right, in three parts. The first is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch, known as the Law of Moses, the books of Moses. And he says the Law of Moses. The second section is the prophets, and the third section is what they call the writings. What's the first book in the section of the writings, according to the way that the Hebrew Scriptures were ordered? The book of Psalms. So here's what Jesus is doing. The whole thing, they, they all understood that. They saw the scripture in these three parts. It's called the Tanakh is how they refer to it. And, and so the Torah and the prophets and the writings, all of them have been pointing to me. The full scope, this is what he's saying. He's not picking and choosing here. He's saying the whole picture has been pointing to me. We already said Jesus quote, uh, frequently quotes the Old Testament. He quotes 49 different verses from the Old Testament, not counting the times that those are laid on top of each other. They quote multiple times, but he quotes 49 different scripture verses from the Old Testament. The top three books that he quotes from are the Psalms, Deuteronomy in the book of Moses and Isaiah from the prophets over and over. He's hammering away at this. The full scope of the whole story has been pointing to me. Jesus trusted the Bible and he used the Bible to help us understand who he is. He said, like the whole story you've been immersed in, it's been preparing you for me. So that's why we teach the Bible. Okay, and here's our process of doing that. When we get together here on a Sunday, here's the rhythm that we follow as a church. Year after year, we follow this same rhythm. Every fall, we start with the Old Testament, and we spend time in the, in the fall walking through some portion of the Old Testament, whether that's a, a figure from the Old Testament or one of the covenant, like anchor covenants that God makes with his people in the Old Testament or some kind of theme We spend time intentionally in the fall in the Old Testament. For us in this community, like fall is when the whole story starts over again, right? So a lot of times it's kind of like, oh, spring is the new year or like January, the new year. For us, it's fall, okay? So in the fall, we restart our story every year and we start back in the beginning in the Old Testament. And so we spend time in the fall going through the Old Testament and then we get to Advent And in Advent, we stay in the Old Testament and we lean on the prophecies and we lean into the prophets during that time. And a lot of times during Advent, we'll intentionally go to some of the minor prophets that you don't normally hear about or get touched on. Right. And so through Advent, then we wait for the arrival of Jesus. And then after the arrival of Jesus at Christmas, we spend the beginning from January uh, on on. We we begin to walk through the life of Jesus. And so we study in the Gospels. And so we spend time studying the Gospels. And then we get to Lent. And in Lent, we begin to see how the story is shifting and Jesus is starting to make his way towards the cross. And so we stay in the Gospels, but we focus on Jesus's move towards the cross. And then through Lent, we are waiting and anticipating Good Friday and Easter. And when we get to Easter, we are celebrating that Jesus is raised from the dead 
Following Easter, we spend this time trying to make sense of what just happened in Easter as we await the ascension and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the believers. And then that brings us to the summer where we normally take some time to study some book of the Bible or some important theme of the Bible that we haven't touched on through the rest of the year. Okay, that's why we we do what we do. That's why we do it. That's how we follow in this rhythm. And you can go back year after year after year and you can see that the way that we follow this rhythm. Now, it's interesting. This could it just looks like a cycle. And if you're not careful, if you just stay in a cycle, you get stuck in a rut. Right. And so instead of that, what we see happening is we use the imagery of a tree. Okay, and and so uh, in Psalm one, it talks about us being plant like a tree planted by streams of water and we bear fruit in season and, 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 and the leaf never withers. Right. That's who we want to be as people who are rooted in Scripture. In Isaiah 61, it says they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's who we want to be. So we use this imagery of being rooted in Scripture and, and a tree growing. And we know that as a tree grows year after year after year, It's the same pattern if you can look on the inside of a tree, right? You look at the rings of a tree and it follows the same pattern over and over and over and over. And it's the same shape, but it's expanding and it's growing. And each year as the roots grow deeper, the rings go wider and the reach goes further. That's who we want to be. We want to be rooted we want to be planted by streams of water alive in the holy spirit bearing the fruit of the spirit planted in the good soil of the word that is the pattern that we follow and we follow that flow of a story we follow this flow of the story because ultimately that's what scripture is is it's a story, it's an epic narrative about God's relationship to the world, about God's love for the world and how he set out to redeem the world that he created. And so we follow this flow of story more than we do just kind of like, okay, here's some instructions for how to be a good Christian. Because that's not what the Bible is. 75% of the Bible, Old and New Testament together, 75% of the Bible is made up of narrative or poetry. Only 25% comes in the form of direct discourse or direct instruction. And so we follow this flow of it. And we understand that the central character of the whole thing is Jesus. And so this is how much time we spend digging into the life of Jesus, rooting ourselves in the life of Jesus. We have something to help you do that out on the the Love Lab uh, display out there. We've got a scripture reading plan. It's a daily reading plan for six months. Okay, one uh, chapter of scripture that walks you through the sweep of the story. It starts in the Gospel of John and then the book of Acts, and then it moves into Old Testament to get you that sense of the whole story. We encourage you to do that. And then today you got this in your seats when you came in. And this is just a simple guide using the acronym of GROW because I'm a nerd and I like acronyms, okay? And using the acronym of GROW uh, to help you study the Bible, to give you an approach for studying yourself or for leading someone else in studying Scripture. So that's where we, how we live in the Word, okay? That's for us. Why? Because Jesus trusted the Bible. 
He's consistently going back to it. Jesus trusted the Bible. So the next question then, then if Jesus trusted the Bible, like, but can I trust Jesus? Right? Can I trust Jesus? Actually, more direct and more important question. Can I trust the New Testament's portrayal of Jesus? Can I trust the New Testament's account of Jesus? Big picture. Can I trust the New Testament? Doesn't the New Testament have an agenda when it's talking to me about who Jesus is? And doesn't the New Testament paint kind of this legend image of who Jesus is like portraying Jesus as as this God-like figure and isn't that something that grew up over time can I really trust what this book has to say about him let's look at a quick timeline okay um, people will say this so in about the year 30 AD is when Jesus is crucified and then the final of the gospels is written somewhere around 90 AD different people can they dispute this okay um, but John goes no later than 90 you can't put John being written any later than 90 because we found a small fragment of the gospel of John it's the earliest piece of scripture that we've laid our hands on we found it just after the year 100 they date it back to around 100 125 and so scholars are agreed across the board. You can't go any later than 90 for the writing of the gospel of John. So if John is the last of the gospels to be written, they think that Mark is probably the first because it's the shortest and the simplest. And so Mark was like this building block gospel written somewhere around 70 AD. And then scholars will put Matthew and Luke somewhere around the 80s, okay? The 80s, that was a good, good era right there, okay? That's my time, all right? That's why they had bad haircuts. Okay, um, so, <laughs> thank you. Matthew and Luke are, are somewhere around there. Matthew and Luke seem to lean very heavily on Mark, okay? About 80% of what's in the Gospel of Mark shows up in both Matthew and Luke, okay? So they're both leaning heavily. John is a very different Gospel, these three together are called the synoptic gospels, which means same view. John is coming from a different view, and that's where some of the trouble comes in. People will point to the doctrine that's laid out in the gospel of John, and they'll say it's a break from what we get in these books. And that in the gospel of John, they're really honing in on the divinity of Jesus. And that John emphasizes it in a way that's not emphasized in the other Gospels. I personally think it is there in the other Gospels. The earliest Gospel of Mark begins with the words, this is the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, so I mean, it's just starting with that off the bat. Okay, you can debate that. Um, but that John begins with this poetic prologue where he goes into this deep theology that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was was God and then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and saying that like putting Jesus on the same level as God Jesus the word was with God and was God and the word became flesh and so they'll say there's a big gap between 30 AD and 90 AD and in this 60 year period legends grew around this person of Jesus Stories got bigger and bigger. They defined and refined more this idea of the divinity of Jesus. 
And by the time we get to 90 AD, this belief and doctrine has grown up of fully God, fully human, that Jesus is divine. Okay? Can you see how that would be a problem? Has anyone encountered this argument before? All right, a lot of people will hammer away at this argument and say that the Jesus we get in John is something that gets constructed over 60 years and it's legend and it's myth. It's legend and it's myth. There's one problem with that. The Gospels weren't the earliest books written in the New Testament. We list them first because that's where we're going to start, right? We're going to start with the story of Jesus, but they weren't actually the first books written. Who is the first author to write in the New Testament? Whose books are the earliest? Paul. The letters of Paul are the earliest New Testament books. And Paul is writing in the 50s. So what does Paul say about Jesus? And that gives us an indication to what the early Christians were already believing about him. Read through the letters of Paul and look at the way he talks about Jesus and and the impact of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Specifically for me, I go to Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, we have something called the Christ hymn. In your Bible, in a lot of your Bibles, a lot of your versions, you'll see that Paul is going along and he's writing and he's writing and he's talking and he's talking. And then there's this break and it changes in format. And he goes from just regular writing and regular discourse to where it looks as if he's quoting a poem. There's a break in format. And so he makes this statement. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was the attitude of Christ Jesus? And then he goes into quoting this poem, quoting this hymn in Philippians chapter 2. So look at Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. It says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness and being crucified, put to death, crucified, buried. But God has exalted him to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. In Philippians chapter 2, we have the earliest hymn that we've discovered that the church gathered around and quoted together or read together or recited together or possibly even sang together in worship of this person, Jesus. All the way back here. So if Paul is writing it in Philippians around in, in 50, right? And he's quoting it as if these people who are receiving this letter already knew it. He didn't introduce it. Hey, let me introduce you to this new song I heard about. You guys might like it and try to sing it. Instead, he just starts into it as if they already knew it. So it was already in existence before he wrote the book of Philippians. And it was already in circulation among the early Christians before he wrote the book of Philippians. So in this period right here. The earliest Christians are already gathering around the name of Jesus and worshiping him. Listen, if you're a Jewish person coming out of Judaism, you don't bow your knee to anybody. You don't confess that anybody else 
is Lord. And yet they came around and they said, God has exalted him to the highest place. He was in very nature, God. He emptied himself and he's been exalted again through the resurrection. He is Lord. He is Lord. The Romans had this concept and this idea that the, the emperor's family, like the royal family, um, went at their death. They went from being human to being made gods. Right. And so that was kind of this like legend that grew up around them. That They went and they called it apotheosis. It's this from from human to being made God. But Christianity is the exact opposite. In Philippians chapter two, these people that would have understood that he flips it on its head and that God becomes human, emptying himself in the person of Jesus. Christianity is not a myth about how a human became a God. It is the mystery of how God became a human. That's what we're here. That's what we do. These last two I'm going to try to hit really quickly. All right. I got carried away. Okay. So who wrote the New Testament? It tells us right here. Jesus tells us who are going to be the people who carry the story forward. Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. And I'm going to send you what the Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What kind of power are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit being poured out on the first believers. This is who wrote the Bible. It was the eyewitnesses of what happened and the Holy Spirit directing them in their writing. Written by the Holy Spirit through human beings, specific, real, actual flesh and blood people in real, actual places, in real, actual times. We do not, as Christians, believe that this book like descended out of heaven one day. All right. in perfectly leather bound, like gilded pages. No. We believe that it was written under the threat of death. We believe that it was written in prison cells. We believe that it was written out on dusty roads as people are risking their lives, taking this story to new places. And we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the people who wrote it. The Holy Spirit inspired as the humans wrote it down. And it's the eyewitness accounts of what happened. Now, immediately people will come back and say, well, no, like they tried to put the names of, of like apostles on it to give it authority. Okay. Well, for one, Mark wasn't an apostle and Luke wasn't an apostle, so that's not a good place to start, okay? Um, but they are carrying and recording the eyewitness accounts of those who were there. Luke even says that, this book we've been looking at today, at the beginning of his book, he says, other people wrote their accounts down. I set out to write down one as well. So I went and I talked to the eyewitness accounts to gather the stories so that we might have an account of what happened when this person, Jesus, walked the earth, was crucified and raised from the dead. There's no way, people will say, that these uneducated fishermen could have influenced the writing of these books. They had no... Or they had no education. Even Luke himself in the book of Acts describes them as ordinary, unschooled people. And that's true. That's true. But here's the deal. A few historical facts. Number one, anybody ever heard of a scribe? Okay, a scribe is a professional person. They're mentioned all the way throughout the New Testament. Jesus is constantly talking about scribes. They're mentioned all the way throughout the New Testament. They're educated. They're professionals. Their job is to write down accounts. 
and they were a part of spreading this early story of Christianity. Paul himself in some of his letters, Paul is highly educated. He says he's one of the most educated, right? That's part of his like resume and his pedigree is his high education. But even Paul uses scribes. In fact, a couple of times, like he gives them a shout out. And also I want to say hello from my scribe who's writing this to you right now, right? It's awesome. In the book of Romans, it says that uh, Tertius says that like, oh, also hi for me. I'm writing this, okay? So there's no attempt to hide that. It's just part of the culture, and everybody understood that. So number one, there's scribes. Number two, we all know that there's a difference between education and intellect. There's a difference between education and intellect. Where did the Wright brothers go to college? <laughs> In the garage, all right. Nowhere, right? They didn't. They didn't go to college. They were brilliant. They were geniuses. They, they didn't get a college degree that told them that. They were geniuses. It was a part of who they were. There's a difference between education and intellect. Where did Abraham Lincoln go to law school? Exactly. The same place he went to college and high school, which was nowhere. All right. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't go to law school. He didn't go to college. He didn't go to high school. And yet he is one of the most brilliant leaders we've ever had in the history of our nation. And we need another one. His use of language for exactly the right moment. His ability to rise above and to see the broader picture. Intellect. I'm not, I'm not banging on education. I'm just saying there's a difference. What about Frederick Douglass? Where did he go to school? Frederick Douglass first learned the alphabet when he was 12 years old. Taught to him by the wife of his slave master when he was 12 years old. And when the slave master found out about it, he shut it down because he knew that slavery and education could not coexist. He later said that was the first great anti-slavery speech he ever heard <laughs> from his own slave master. So he set out to become educated on his own, and he taught himself to read. He taught himself to read and still was one of the great orators we've ever experienced in this country. There's a difference between education and intellect. And finally, there's more than one form of education. There's more than one form of education. Those of you who are UNC students, either undergrad or grad school or, or PhD or, or wherever you are in that process or even professors that are in the room, we have such deep respect for education in this community. We love it. We're hungry for it. We're thirsty for it. And four years in a place like this, being exposed to the most brilliant professors and their brilliant ideas, that is a deeply formative experience to spend four years sitting under the intellect and teaching of some of these great professors. But I suppose that spending three years under the direct tutelage of the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth named Jesus himself might leave some small impact and effect on a person's life. It's the eyewitness accounts told by those who experienced it. You don't make this up when the people who witnessed it are still alive. You don't create legends when they can easily be knocked down by eyewitnesses who know it's not true. There's so much pouring into this 
We don't have time for anything else. Who formed the New Testament? It wasn't Constantine. Okay, I'll just say that. All right. There's a popular conspiracy theory that the emperor Constantine decided what got in the New Testament. It's not true. At the Council of Nicaea, that's not even what the Council of Nicaea was about. It was in the year 325 A.D. Constantine did convene that council, but it wasn't about deciding what was in the Bible. 100 years before that, we've got record of one of the earlier church fathers listing out, here are the most trusted books to pour yourself into and to study the most trusted accounts. And 100 years before that one, even 200 years before the Council of Nicaea, there's another list that people feel is credible from another early leader who lists out what is almost exactly in our New Testament. I encourage you to go look up uh, the Council of Nicaea. I encourage you to look up like how the Bible was put together. I encourage you to look up the manuscripts and like all of the questions about the errors and mistakes in the manuscripts, look it up. All right. Wikipedia. All right. Can I get an amen on Wikipedia in this place? All right. Is is Wikipedia like a, a Christian like agenda machine? No. All right. Go read it. Go read what they have to say about all these things. I did. Yeah. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, no, no lightning bolts, <laughs> no lightning bolts. Yeah, okay, there you go. So, so in, it, yes, Moses' description of the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are written by God, that he, that he writes that. But our understanding of all of the rest of the scripture is that it's the Holy Spirit inspiring humans who wrote it one last thing and we're wrapping up band can come on back up okay here's the thing here's how we got the 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 new testament that we've got was it the political motivation of an emperor like constantine was it power play was it greed some political leader like pouring money into it to make them choose this no now, politicians and powerful people have always tried to manipulate Christianity and have always tried to get their hands on it, but it continues to move forward even in spite of that. Go all the way back to the disciples themselves. We got two of the brothers who send their mom to go ask Jesus to give them a place on either side of him in this place of honor. That's a backdoor, like backroom power play political move. And did it work? No. We've got people who are motivated by greed. Judas gets paid 30 pieces of silver to shut the whole thing down. Did it shut it down? No, it pushed it forward. So there will always be politicians and powerful people that have agendas that want to get their hands on it and manipulate Christianity. But Jesus will continue to rise. The risen Jesus will continue to rise. And the truth will continue to come to the surface. And that's how we got the New Testament, as a matter of fact. It's that these were the most trusted books. These were the ones that the church had already begun to lean on. They were circulating them. They had tested them with their lives. And they had come to this place of trusting them. And that's how we get the books that we've got. Like one person said, Newton didn't create or discover gravity. Right? 
He just recognized it. And that's what happens with the Bible. It's not created. It's not discovered. It was recognized that these are the books that rose to the top. And the great point of all of it. The great point of all of it is this. The central figure is Jesus himself. The central figure is Jesus himself. And this is not just some ancient document. But we believe it is a story that we get invited into. To become followers of Jesus Christ. And to step into the greatest story the world has ever known or experienced. And that he continues to live that story out in this world through us. And I believe that this story has the power and the potential and the credibility to turn the world on its head. And the past 2,000 years are proof enough of that. Amen.